I think one thing on tech that helped that kind of craziness that's happening now on far right and disinformation is the logic of the algorithms that allow for people to live in their filter bubble. So you start to receive a lot of content about the same misinformation and then out of a sudden that bubble constructed a parallel reality with a lot of untrue facts. The algorithms on social media that we have now, they promote misinformation and they promote hate because those kinds of content have much more engagement than the regular, sometimes boring truth. So that's something also for us to think about. The relation of civil society. Die Kulturmittler. Der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Welcome back to IFA's Podcast, The Kulturmittler, the title of which can be roughly translated as The Cultural Conciliators. I'm Dan Wesker. The voice you heard at the beginning belongs to Joanna Varon. She's the executive directress and creative chaos catalyst at Coding Rights Brazil. Coding Rights is a think tank run by women that exposes and redresses the power imbalances built into technology and its application, particularly those that reinforce gender discrimination and inequalities between the global north and south. Joanna Varon is our guest for this episode and we'll talk about her visions for creating a more equal and inclusive digital world. First, I wanted to get her opinion on recent developments in the tech world. The social network Twitter is one of the most relevant media outlets of the civil society worldwide and political movements such as the Arab Spring. Back in October, Elon Musk bought the platform. I asked Joanna Varon what changes she has already seen since Musk's takeover and what she is expecting in the future. Sure, it has changed already, you know. He dismantled all the team that was responsible for thinking about human rights and the company. The safety and security council is also compromised. So he has a very old view of tech, that tech is about just the developers that are not even literate in human rights issue and we are all already know that technology is not neutral it can cause implications on rights and he has been dismantling all that and having horrible working conditions so of course the software that will come out of all that will progressively be affected That's why we have a problem on having monopolies because like what happened with Twitter, it got bought by one single person with a crazy vision of the world and of politics and all that. So this is threatening to particularly to the most vulnerabilized communities. You know? if, if you don't have a, a safety and security council in place, people thinking about human rights, and he's actually reestablishing several accounts from, from far right. So those people are back on and attacking people. It's already very chaotic. Do you believe that a 
uh, a better and, and fairer version is possible? It's a fight in many layers, no? The layer of regulation and regulation in several fields, from consumers' law, data protection, competition law, human rights law. So there is the layer of regulation. There is the layer of investing on science and technology development, local science, science and technology development. What we have now are tools that are like universalizing one technology, but every community, every context have a particular need of a technology in terms of language, in terms of the level of connectivity. So if we can create an environment that's rich for the development of tech, we can have alternative tech as well. And I think that alternative text shouldn't have this goal to be completely global and universalized. We just need technologies that are interoperable. It doesn't need to be that big, you know, we are creating like big monsters. So then it's hard to deal with them. At the moment, Joanna Varon is a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy from Harvard Kennedy School and affiliated to the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, among many other international civil society activities. I wanted to know how she came to be so involved with human and digital rights in the first place. Since I was a little girl, I always liked video games and I used to engage in video game activities and back then when I look around I was surrounded by boys and I was like why where are the girls I only boys are here and that was I think the the first feeling that I had that there was something wrong. And then when I created Coding Rights uh, Organization, I had this idea of, okay, let's gather women and non-binary people to think about technology. Before that, I was already engaging in the tech field in research centers in, in Brazil or as a consultant. I was again surrounded by men. So I wanted back then to discuss, okay, what if we debate gender and technology? What if I get surrounded by women and non-binary people? What, what kind of projects would emerge? What kind of debates would we have if we add this layer of gender and add feminism to the debate around technology? Bringing feminism and more inclusive ideas into the digital space, these are just some ways in which Joanna Varon aims to not only improve the online world, but also the lives of people in general. She doesn't separate human and digital rights, as the latter should be seen as an important part of any human rights debate. Especially now when fake news, far-right filter bubbles and big tech firms are threatening democracies all over the globe. I wanted to know how far the human rights debates have changed because of digitalization. I think new 
challenges arise and also opportunities, no? because now we can communicate much wider with similar communities. We can exchange ideas about strategies. So there is the, the opportunities that uh, communication brings. And that was the main spirit of the internet before it got monopolized by big tech companies. And then some challenges arise in terms of surveillance, protection of privacy, of freedom of expression, particularly in this context of uh, mon monopolization, some of the main tools that we use to communicate. So there are lots of opportunities and uh, lots of challenges as well. But for me, what I don't like from of the term digital rights is that it kind of get separated a little bit from the traditional challenges of human rights. And that's what is important that we connect back. All the knowledge that has been produced in the field of human rights, in the field of, of feminist, anti-racist fights, all that applies to technologies as well. We are not departing from something completely new, but there is this extra layer of tech. You know, I understand, I mean, if one's been concerned about human rights before, um, then obviously one one sees it again uh, with the expansion of the web and, and online media and stuff. How did you actually come to it? I came to this uh, decades ago when we thought the internet was a tool for revolution, a tool for access to knowledge. We were debating copyleft, creative commons, exceptions and limitations to patents, access to medicines, access to content and technology as a tool for communicating. We had this hope of changing power structures, an opportunity to, to exchange content that was never seen before. So back then there was the fight, access to knowledge, and then many things uh, changed. There was this progressive monopolization of tools that we use in the internet. Social media started. So we had uh, the fights on freedom of expression and content moderation. How do we balance those two things? Particularly when the business model of those main, mainstream social media is the surveillance capitalism. So how do we protect our privacy, our data in this kind of scenario of this uh, dominant business model? Uh, how do we protect freedom of expression, but also protect vulnerabilized communities like LGBT communities? I'm part of the LGBTQI plus community as well. As well. How can we have freedom of expression, but also not pertained by hate speech, misinformation? How do we assess that ba balance? How do we deal with the fact that those companies acting as uh, in this business model of surveillance capitalism and their relation to governments uh, exposing our data? So how do we maintain some level of anonymity that is important to discuss in the democracy without turning all this into toxic spaces. 
There are many debates that underline the classic human rights challenges, and those debates became progressively more complicated with the digitalization, with the monopolization, and the differences on north and south on how those technologies are being developed and implemented. So I also debate a lot practices of digital uh, colonialism. Like there is a logic of the Silicon Valley that is colonizing uh, most of the globe. And there is now the emergency of tools from China. So where do we position ourselves in, in this? I live in Brazil. In Latin America, can we recall our culture and think about other technologies that emerge from other logics? There are more uh, the colonial logics, feminist logics, and not the surveillance capitalist logic and the digital colonization logic. So those are like the emerging themes and. and that I have tried to deal with in the field. I mean, you mentioned already the North-South inequalities and uh, and the Silicon Valley influence and China's influence on the, on the world. How would you imagine that uh, these power imbalances could be challenged? How could they change? It's a great question and a big problem, no? So we have two big political and economic superpowers. No? It's called in rights. We are doing a map of the internet territory and playing with tech cartographies. And the idea is to exactly materialize technology. There isn't particularly the, the internet we are focusing on because there was the, this idea of the cloud and the cloud doesn't exist. What we have are servers, cables, factories producing the the ships and the components and the devices. And then we have people working on software layer. And then we have waste, a lot of e-waste. So in this geopolitical structure of the internet, we have China as the main place where manufacturing all this, even the devices that are sold by U.S. brands. So China, independently, is the main producing of all our devices today. It produces a lot of e-waste because that's where the factories are, but it also imports e-waste from the globe to recycle and to use in the factories. So even in the debates of uh, ecological debates, climate justice, do we want to remain as that? Do we want to think about other ways to produce those devices in other uh, regions and also with other logics that is not only the Chinese logic? Because then we have the North as the major consumers of those devices and those devices get discarded uh, very quickly. So a lot of the production of the e-waste is also in the north because they have more consumer power. But on the other hand, we see again a colonial logic because the extractivism of uh, minerals, the mining, 
mostly happens in the South, in Africa, in Latin America. So for instance, Elon Musk selling Tesla cars and saying that, oh, this is green. Actually, green for who? Because for those cars to function, they need batteries. And for the batteries to exist, they need lithium. And most of the lithium is now in uh, Latin America, in Chile, in Argentina, in Bolivia. What is the social environmental impact from mining, for, from extracting all this lithium? How could that be green if it's destroying many people's lives and many ways of being and of living? We need to rethink. So the exercise of the map is exactly to showing those processes at least of the internet, showing the colonial logic behind it. So we can rethink what, what is the alternative that we want from the manufacturer level of the devices to the soul of the devices, to the softer level of the devices. And mm -hmm. what I see is that we need to diversify. No, We need to break those giant big tech monopolies in one hand and we need to redistribute and be more local if things are produced more local and um, recycle more local we are more connected to the impacts of things because then we see it in our background at coding rights joanna Varon raises awareness about the current artificial intelligence systems used by the public sector as they can transfer racist and misogynist ideas. I wanted to know how exactly these technologies discriminate and if we can do anything about it. At Coding Rights, in partnership with my colleague Paz Peña from Chile, we started this project that's called Not My AI, in which we studied and we mapped projects that were being implemented, AI projects being implemented by the public sector in Latin America. And as Katie O'Neill says, uh, AI and algorithms are mathematics that have like values embedded in mathematics. And we currently live in a very unequal patriarchal, sexist, LGBT-phobic, racist society. So if those who develop or who commission uh, these systems have those values, those values are only hidden into the math. is sold as something neutral, but it's, it's going to just automate inequalities no from my uh, perspective i mean all these sort of empirical things that were embedded in society in the first place they've they've sort of just been able to grow without regulation for for, for most of the development of the web is regulation really the way that that one can draw this in a little bit and, and control it that there's tighter regulation uh, you know as as there is with uh, perhaps television, radio, newspapers, all the old forms of media. Can a similar thing be done with online digital? 
Yes, but I think it's not the only path. No, so, uh, the organization that I founded, uh, it's called Coding Rights. And by coding, I, I mean legal, legally coding the law, legal codes, but also coding programming codes. So I think it goes both ways. The way we we envision and develop and code those technologies and the way we regulate it and the way we use it. No, Sometimes the way we use a tech, we hack the purpose on which that tech was envisioned or created. It has many layers of resistance, but also the first layer is to create awareness about the technical, political aspects of the technologies that we use today. So that's why we have this project of mapping the internet territories. It's about creating awareness. The Not My AI is also creating awareness and building a feminist framework to question AI systems because we also need to have the tools to to criticize and to to have a critical views of those systems. And I think feminism is a good tool, but from the feminism, we have the debate on the power relations, no? Sometimes uh, human rights, we have this view of what are the rights that should be universalized, freedom of expression, access to the internet, data protection, privacy, right, social justice, equality, social environmental justice, those are goals, no? But we don't have all those rights guaranteed universally. We have power imbalances and we have differences. And that's where feminist theories uh, plays a role on having that lenses that points out to the power imbalances on implementing rights. So I think those are good analytical tools for us to have awareness of the problems, but also to create the alternatives. So we also have another project that's called the Oracle for Transfeminist Futures that Coding Rights develops also in partnership with Sasha Constance Schock, she wrote a book uh, about design justice. And with the Oracle, it's like a tarot deck. We play on env- envisioning transfeminist technologies. Like it has a set of values like non-binary, diversity, equality, interoperability. So we play with that to envision alternative tech. And of course, this is like a more of a game that also helps people to get out of the box of what technology is, of the narratives of technology, which is also coined by like Hollywood. So we we need to decolonize our imaginaries around tech as well to be able to reinvent and invent other techs. Are there specific events or situations that that make you want to push your topics even more or have or have made you sure. understand how important it is to raise awareness on this topic i think in the last three years we saw emerging the 
cyber feminists in Latin America, a lot of feminists building alternate feminist infrastructure and feminist projects on, on data, like data about feminicide, feminist infrastructure projects that are community wireless networks, but also victories in the legal arena, like uh, the initiatives that managed to to ban facial recognition and for for security purposes that sold as security, but is actually automating racism. So there are many victories. What Brazil has is data protection law now in force. So it's gradual. The, the legal victories are slower than the community victories because legal path takes longer to, to approve and all that. But there are many. And I think more people are critical about technology, you know, after Snowden revelations, after Cambridge Analytics scandals, even after after Trump and the misinformation war, people got more aware about the possible damages of technology. So that's also something positive that emerged from something bad. Fake news distributed via social media are damaging factors to democracies. Not just Donald Trump's rage against the truth has torn societies apart. Similar strategies can be seen in other parts of the world. I asked Joanna Varon about her experiences in Brazil and whether she thinks that we have reached the peak of the alternative facts age. Hard to answer that. We just uh, had the elections here in Brazil with Bolsonaro using pretty much the same strategies as Trump because it's it's global. No, we have Steve Bannon and his crew teaching lots of people and spreading those statics across the globe. And just this week, as uh, Lula got his diploma of president. In the same day, far-right people, very radicalized, went to the streets in Brasilia, the capital, to burn buses and cars. They were all like feeding misinformation that led to those acts as well, you know, falsely questioning elections integrity. So at least here in Brazil, in the 1st of January, we will have uh, Lula he was just just got the diploma for president and then in the 1st of january he, he starts his turn and there is a ceremony for that so we are like having a close look on the networks and being cautious about the securities of all that no we are like on red alarm all this mass of misinformation from far right, this fostering a vision of society that should have been far gone because it's not a vision of, of care, of of patience, of, of love. It's a vision of hate, of disseminating false information to foster hate against each other. No, we have the neo-Nazi people 
emerging. So all those things should have gone far in the past. We have seen what are the consequences of all that hate. I think we need to have more research to understand how misinformation is affecting people's minds and consciences to to foster this kind of ideas. How do we battle that from the regulations, of course, but also from reassessing what is wrong with society to leave space for this kind of mentality that's full of violence and hate and how we can overcome that through social education projects, through, I don't know, sports. I think there is something there to to deal with that's very problematic and dangerous. Uh, our elections here were not an elections about a party or another. It was an elections about maintaining democracy, maintaining a democratic space for debate and going completely authoritarian. Luckily, we went for democracy. Uh, sometimes for me, it's insane to think that it was very close, no? So I think we need to understand further what are the psychological and social aspects in society that are opening spaces for that kind of view that's so violent. I always find that under this white flag of uh, free speech, suddenly, as you say, ideas that should have been left by the side many, you know, many decades ago have suddenly exploded again onto the scene. How do you see the relationship of the civil society sector with this technology? I think one thing on tech that helped that kind of craziness that's happening now on far right and disinformation is the logic of the algorithms that allow for people to live in their filter bubble. So you start to receive lot of content about the same misinformation and then out of a sudden that bubble constructed a parallel reality with a lot of untrue facts. The algorithms on social media that we have now, they promote misinformation and they promote hate because those kinds of content have much more engagement than the regular sometimes boring truth. So that's something also for us to think about. The relation of civil society. So it, it changes, no? Like, for instance, under uh, while Brazil was under Bolsonaro government, he closed all the channels with civil society, the progressive civil society to engage with public policies. And now with, like, for instance, Musk on Twitter also changed the scenario because before civil society that were operating on the field of human rights and technology will have some level of uh, dialogue with people, the human rights people, the safety and security people on Twitter and how all these people are gone. So then you don't have more interaction with the platform. So I think those relations change according to the political scenario in the countries and according to how those companies are operating. And 
taking into consideration what we have to say. You know? Again, even when Twitter have the human rights people and all the big tech platforms that have human rights people, it's very different to engage with them being from Brazil or the other country from the South or being from the U.S. We feel that things here needed to escalate from the Brazilian office to the U.S. office to really be considered seriously. How could software be based more on human rights? What do you think could be implemented that would, would uh, address human rights much more? Yeah, encryption was should be the basics, I guess. But uh, yeah, there isn't a like a receipt. I think if a software is produced by and with the community, it's it's made to be used for. It will be more connected with the needs, but also with the rights of that community. The problem is that the big tech and the mainstream software that we use now were built with this view of like being global, universal, and uh, for profit and for surveillance capitalism. So if I sit here and craft a software with my community to map feminicide in Rio de Janeiro, it's very likely that's going to be a software that have embedded on it human rights considerations. So I think the issue of scale is something. Things shouldn't have such a huge scale. That's something that capitalism teaches you for things to scale. But I I think we need to degrow on that sense. But build things that are interoperable. So they don't scale, but they talk to each other. So, and that was in the beginning of the internet, no? Uh, internet has operability, interoperability as a core value. It has the links as a core value, but then Instagram came and killed the links, no? What is that? You should couldn't click on things. You need to go to the bio to click. Some core principles that were laid down in the beginning of the internet were engineering principles that actually helped human rights. So we can reclaim those and expose what those monopolies have destroyed, reclaim those principles, and I think be more local but interoperable is one step for solutions. Artificial intelligence that is programmed to be discriminating and fake news are growing concerns. This is partly caused by big tech companies that are creating software for a universal and global market instead of searching to work on a more local and community-based level, according to Joanna Varon, who is worried about the future of the digital world. But with her projects, she is drawing attention to human rights-based technology and seeks to reinforce the ideas of the digital world being an important tool for the civil society. So, with that, we've reached the end of this episode. This was the last episode of the year. Thanks so much for listening, as always. If you have any suggestions, critique or wishes, feel welcome to email us at podcast at 
My name's Dan Wesker. Take care and goodbye until the next time. Die Kulturmittler. Der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.